Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Mikla Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a Changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. Today I am joined by another member of um, British and Europe's steering group, Fiona, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah, you can. Hi, Mikla. Really happy to be doing this. Um, my name's Fiona Godfrey. I'm a British and now a Luxembourgish dual national citizen living in Luxembourg, and I'm the co-chair of British in Europe. And in my day job, I'm a policy consultant working in EU public health policy. That must be a pretty busy area right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> COVID, COVID, <laughs> COVID and citizens' rights. That's my life right now. Yeah. You're living in Luxembourg at the moment. And to me, my curiosity is sparked because it really is not one of the places people think about when they think about British citizens living in the EU. Although I'm aware that there there are plenty of British citizens living there for a variety of reasons. Could you start by telling me a little bit about your journey to Luxembourg? Sure. Well, I think like a lot of Brits who now live in the EU, um, I ended up here for love. Um, but it wasn't a straightforward path. I was born in Barnsley and I grew up in a working class family in Bradford and I was always interested in languages and in fact my mum tells me that I used to wander around the house speaking in made-up languages when I was little and I remember the first political conversation of my life was actually watching the BBC News and they were talking about the 1975 referendum And I asked my mum what they were talking about. And she told me that it was about a referendum vote. And I asked what the EC was. And she said, well, it's a peace project, but it also would allow you to go and work in the EC or EEC at the time if you want to when you're older. And and she mentioned a guy who lived down the road from us who'd just gone to work in Brussels. And I think that thought lodged in my brain But I actually went off to university to study Russian rather than EU languages and then law. Um, But whilst I was studying Russian, I met a a German-Chilean student called Miguel on my course. And we got together and I started spending a lot of time in Amsterdam with him because his parents live there. And so I would spend university summer holidays going over to, to work there. But meanwhile... Miguel had applied for indefinite leave to remain in the UK because he'd lived there since 1978. And in early 1986, his application was uh, refused. So that started um, a three-year battle between him and the Home Office to secure his rights. And he won his case, um, but it was an early lesson for me in the vulnerability of EU citizenship rights or EC rights at the time. We didn't really have EU citizenship rights as a concept then. It wasn't a new concept for him to have to battle his rights because he'd left Chile at the age of um, eight as a refugee because his parents were on the the arrest list after the the coup by General Pinochet. So he was used to having to fight for his rights as an individual and and for his, his civil rights. But for me, it was something new. Um, So it was there in the background. And then in 1992, he um, was offered a job at the European Parliament in Luxembourg. So he took that. And then we had a three-year cross-border relationship. 
And then we got married in 1995 and he actually wanted to move back to the UK because he'd been living in London before he left and he loved it and still does. But I, going back to that long ago conversation by then with my mum, I said, no, I want to go and, and, you know, exercise my free movement rights and go and, and live in Luxembourg. So I did and I had to start all over again, which I didn't mind doing. It was great and I wouldn't have changed it. We did move to Germany in 1999 when I fell pregnant with our first child because my husband, who moved around a lot as a child, wanted them to actually be brought up in one of the countries of their citizenship. So at the time that was British or or German and Germany was the only option to stay in Luxembourg and work there. But then we moved back in 2002 because I started having to travel a lot for my job and it was just much easier to be in Luxembourg. So we moved back at Christmas 2002 and we've been here ever since. So a bit of a long story, but that's how I ended up here. I think that's a great story in terms of kind of outlining the the circumstances that come together, the coincidences that happen that mean that people are in different places at different points in time. And I don't want to kind of make light of this, but one of the things that struck me um, while I've been doing the research with British citizens who live in the EU is actually how many people from Yorkshire there are living in the EU, which actually has come up quite a few times in recent years at various events, you know, the connection to Yorkshire. And I wouldn't want to dwell on it too long, but it, it is quite notable this kind of movement from Yorkshire, which of course is a huge county, I mean, aside from anything else. Yeah, I think it's a, a re- really important part of the conversation when we think about British emigration, that we're talking about the whole of the UK, actually, um, and also um, the kind of different regions within that. And I think also the, the second point that I wanted to, to make about your story is, of course, I think when people think about who people might be in relationships with, they don't necessarily think, well, you might be in a relationship with somebody who doesn't necessarily share your nationality and citizenship. That prevents us from understanding the wide range of reasons and the different conversations that might be happening that mean that people end up in particular places at particular times, the types of compromises people have to make within the context of those uh, family relationships, essentially, I think. They're something that needs to be centred a lot more, I think, in those understandings. Yeah, totally agree with you on that one. I I mean, obviously, you've got this history of having thought about, you know, the rights of people to be living and working in the places that they want to be living in and working in for a variety of reasons, including, as you said, through the example of of your husband. But since the referendum, you've been really involved with thinking about this in the case of British citizens in Europe. And I guess your starting point there will have been British citizens living in Luxembourg. So before we get into the kind of the the trickiness of the citizens' rights negotiations, what can you tell us about British people who live in Luxembourg more generally? Obviously, I mean, there is probably no generalizable (laughs) statement that you can make, Well, yeah, that's a really interesting question because um, I founded a group, a Facebook group of British citizens called British Immigrants Living in Luxembourg because we were keen to stress that we were immigrants and not expats. And this was in response to the the 2016 referendum vote because a lot of people were, were shocked by what happened and were basically grieving and we set up this Facebook group in July 2016 and within 12, within a month we had 1,200 
um, members of the British community living in Luxembourg out of a total population of 6,000. So it was, it was a pretty representative group. And in 2016, we surveyed the group and you know got a very good 35, 40% response. And it showed about a third of us were EU officials or working as officials for other international agencies here. And then some of us were, yes, working in finance, which is what everybody associates with, with Luxembourg. But there were also lawyers, there were consultants like me, there were researchers, people in IT, people in the creative industries, which you wouldn't normally associate with Luxembourg. So we were a really mixed group. About 10% of us were cross-border workers here in Luxembourg, but living in France, Germany or, or Belgium. Going back to your point about partners, that was really interesting because 50% of us who had partners had non-British partners. Um, so that became a really important campaigning point for me. And we were all very much committed to staying in Luxembourg. About 90% of us, in fact, said that we would want to stay here. And a lot of us had been either in Luxembourg for a long time or we'd moved around and been out of the UK for a long time, maybe working in another EU member state before ending up in Luxembourg. So about two thirds of us didn't have the vote in the referendum. And that was also driving a lot of anger. And since then, it's become quite interesting because I was checking the statistics last week and the British population here now is um, just over, it's over 7,000 even though several hundred of us are naturalised and we don't show up in the statistics as Brits anymore, we appear as Luxembourgers. So it's been a, given the size of our starting point population back in 2016, quite a few people have come over and it seems that those people are obviously no longer coming to work in the EU institutions. They've come over and work in the private sector. A lot of them have been transferred over with their companies as a result of Brexit and they're a lot younger. So it's it's the 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 demographic is is really changing now, and, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens after the end of this year and the end of the transition period, and and who can still keep coming as you know highly qualified professionals and non-company posted worker schemes, etc. I think that's really interesting in terms of highlighting the kind of the shape of the economic structure in Luxembourg and how that's attracted particular populations. I don't think that people often think about Luxembourg as a space of EU institutions within that broader structure. I mean, people think about, obviously think about Brussels, but they forget these other places where, where people might be. And I suspect it wouldn't be surprising at all if, of course, the structure of um, the British labour market in Luxembourg changed in consequence of Brexit precisely because now the possibility for British citizens to work within EU institutions has shrunk rapidly. In terms of citizens' rights, though, I mean, I think that this is kind of the, the, the really key issue about Brexit when it comes to UK citizens living in the EU. And I imagine, well, I know that the last four years must have been quite a roller coaster for you. Um, and I wanted to kind of focus a little bit on um, the relationship of the British state to you and others like you, its non-resident British citizens. Yeah, I mean, this whole process has been a bit of an eye-opener for me, really. And it's ironic in lots of ways that I found myself as, you know, the person fighting for the rights of British citizens living in Luxembourg or the wider EU, because I was never part of, of what you might call the British expat community in Luxembourg and I kind of wore my British and my EU citizenship quite lightly I think. 
I was wondering why I'd never had contact or felt part of the British community here. And I think in part it's because the relationship between the UK and its citizens abroad is one that's really built around trade. And I guess this is a legacy of empire. It's always struck me that if you're a member of the British Chamber of Commerce in Luxembourg or you know Berlin or anywhere else, or you're a, a senior manager in a British multinational, you'll be on the radar of the embassy and the British community. But if you're not in that circle, and I'm not, then you tend to be invisible. And it's almost as if your value as a UK citizen to the UK government when you live abroad is is based on it's it's an economic value not on it's not based on your citizenship as a British passport holder so I think I've realized or the thought at least has crystallized in my head over the the last few years that the minute you step on that ferry at Dover or on the plane at Manchester to to move abroad you start a process of becoming a second-class British citizen because I realized that as a British citizen living abroad I've lost one of only a handful of rights that I have, which is to vote. I lost that in 2010. I've passed on my citizenship to my kids who were born in 2000 and 2002. And so all I have really left now is being able to show up at the British border with my British passport, which actually expired last September and I haven't renewed it yet, and say, I'm a British citizen, let me in. When I was thinking about this podcast, I remembered that in the autumn of 2017, Um, I got invited to a meeting with a British minister who was over for an EU meeting at the British Embassy in uh, Luxembourg. And I have to say our ambassador here has been very helpful in facilitating contact between visiting British ministers and um, Brill and and British in Europe to discuss citizens' rights. And on that occasion, I took my 17-year-old son with me, who is a, a triple British, Chilean, German national with me. Because I wanted him to make the argument about continuing home fees for British students after the end of the transition period. And he talked to the minister about this and she said, well, you're 17, so you're going to go to university in 2018, so you'll be fine. So he said, well, yes, but what about my younger sister who you know, could be affected, will be affected by the potential loss of home fees? And the minister turned to my son and said, well, you know, there are different kinds of UK citizenship. And I was just gobsmacked, not to mention angry, but it was a really revealing comment. Because basically, my 17-year-old son, um, who's a full British national, was effectively being told that he and his sister were viewed differently by the British government because they'd grown up outside the UK, despite being in many ways as British as it gets and being full British citizens. That's a really fascinating um, story with, with a set of insights in it, which I'd love to go into in more detail. But I think that the first one that kind of stood out to me is this, this idea of, you know, when you cross the border, you have this kind of depreciation of rights. and But that part of that is framed by a politics that somehow sees Britishness and Europeanness as oppositional. I think it's a a really important insight that as soon as you leave the island, that particular island, your your status somehow is is called into question and your loyalties are called into question. And that that then shapes your access to the rights of citizens or the assumed rights of citizens, which are 
things like the right to participate in the political process. So with that comes a loss of obligations from the British state towards its citizens overseas. And I think that that's that's something which is unique and it's partly unique because of the history of British nationality law um, and its relationship with, with immigration law. But I think that's certainly nevertheless at this time that must have been even more galling to come face to face with. It has been. And it's also, I mean, my thinking about this has really been influenced by my conversation with my husband as well, because as I mentioned, um, he and his family had to go into exile in 1973. So they were on an arrest list, and they, but they managed to get out of Chile two weeks after. His mother was Chilean. But um, my father-in-law had thankfully been offered a job in in Berlin starting in September 73 and he just just got passports for the kids and himself um, before the coup and they got out and his mum got out and the family stayed together but his mum was was stripped of her Chilean passport well well, she wasn't stripped of it she was allowed to keep it she was allowed to renew but she it said not valid for entry into Chile Um, which I always found an amazing thing to put in someone's passport. And this was also, uh, his his father had had to go into exile in 1933. He was born in Berlin in 1929, and his father was a very well-known left-wing writer, and he was one of the first two or 300 people to be stripped of his German citizenship by the Nazis. So my entire sort of family history with my husband has, uh, for the last... 30 odd years we've been thinking about these ideas and it's one of the reasons why we decided to move to Germany when I got pregnant because we wanted to really really nail down one of the citizenships of our kids because we knew that British was going to be difficult we'd already been through the process with the home office and that was based on different interpretations of UK immigration law so for us it's this whole discussion about citizenship has been really really important and my husband subsequently went to a, an enormous amount of, of trouble to gather the paperwork across five or six different countries to ensure that our children could apply for Chilean citizenship and they got Chilean passports about a decade ago. And now my daughter, in fact, has got four citizenships because she got Luxembourgish through me and I now have to get it for my son because he didn't get it automatically because he was over 18. So we've had to think a lot about this and really the like you say the the british attitude towards citizenship is really extreme and is towards a spectrum of a loss of rights that you do see only in cases where there has been a coup d'etat or a situation of war or civil war and it's just been astonishing for me as a brit to go through that having heard about the experience of my husband and his his father and his grandfather in in Germany in the 1930s and then Latin America in in the 1970s. I mean, that is quite an extraordinary family history that shows you how, um, what's the right word here, that shows you how precarious those rights actually are. You know, we all stand by this idea of it being law and that being solid, but they can be changed just like that, as, as your, your husband's family experiences and, and biography demonstrate. So this is just the latest in that for his family in some respects, this kind of transformation of rights. 
I just wanted to ask you, I mean, against that background, you obviously have a really deep understanding of, of the challenges relating to actually just maintaining rights as citizens. What kind of particular challenges would you say that you and British and Europe have faced in communicating and advocating for these rights? Because everything you've said is not common knowledge. I mean, around British nationality and citizenship law. You know, most people until very recently would not have been aware that there were six different types of nationality in the UK, for example, each with ever depreciating sets of rights, really. So what have been the challenges that you have have faced in communicating for uh, the citizens' rights of UK citizens living in the EU after Brexit? Oh, well, there's been lots and lots of them, as you might expect. Um, So I think perceptions and stereotypes is one. Um, Our ability to be a political force in British EU or member state politics and the hostile environment in the UK uh, towards immigration and immigrants and citizens' rights and also British tactics and positions during the, the negotiation of the withdrawal agreement. So if we start with perceptions, I mean, you you know, your, your, your research has really looked into this, but we're still seen by politicians and members of the public and journalists pretty much everywhere as predominantly, you know, gin or lager drinking Brexit-voting pensioners, despite the fact, as we keep repeating ad nauseum, 80% of us are of working age or younger. I think a lot of people in the UK just didn't understand what the problem was and that what our inability to secure our citizenship rights meant for them in terms of the future relationship of the UK and the EU. I think also it's been a problem that we're 1.2 million and we're spread across 27 EU states. I like to that losing our vote, 60% of us are disenfranchised now, so that makes it difficult to build um, relationships and alliances in the House of Commons. And even if we do have a vote, we're always going to be a minuscule political force because of the first past the post system. The EU now sees us as third country nationals, despite our years of EU citizenship. And on one memorable occasion in one meeting, before the UK had left, it was even before the original Brexit date of March 2019, we were told you are third country nationals, which is an interesting insight into how they were thinking already. With the, We struggled in the European Parliament, especially now that British MEPs have gone. A lot of our champions went with them. And we had a really good example of that in the last month when we had to fight really, really hard to get a more balanced text on the implementation of the citizens' rights chapter of the withdrawal agreement into the resolution from the middle of June on the UK-EU negotiations on the future relationship. And the text, as it came out, was originally quite unbalanced. The focus was all on the challenges faced by the three million in getting their rights implemented. And they obviously have huge problems, but so do we, particularly given that most of our member states have not actually started implementing yet. And in the end, we did get the text changed which was good to see. And we got a lot of very high level political support, but it was a real battle and it was a real insight into how we are seen um, or not seen. And then, you know, the UK negotiating position through the withdrawal agreement talks was a complicating factor because we asked them to advocate for certain rights and mutual recognition of professional qualifications is a key example. And they did, but the outcome of that was that the EU saw us as a Trojan horse for a UK government position of having their internal cake, internal market cake and eating it. 
rather than seeing us as a group of highly mobile citizens who need mutual professional recognition qualifications to really continue to live our lives. So it's been difficult. And then on top of all of that, I'm sorry, this is a really long answer, but coming back to the hostile environment, the UK government has actually pitched us against other British citizens trying to secure rights for third country nationals. So our campaign on trying to keep our EU surrendering rights and family reunification is a key example of that. We would go into meetings with civil servants and, and ministers and MPs and argue for a levelling up so that all British citizens, no matter where their family members came from and whether or not they had ever left the UK or not, would have the same rights as us and that the minimum income requirement would be abolished and that family reunification would be made easier. But of course, the UK government response was not to level up, but to level down. And we can see that happening now in the immigration bill. So it's it's been difficult across the board, really. And um, we've had to fight our own government. We've had to try and f- change perceptions with even friends and family. And and yeah, politicians in all twenty seven countries and in, and in Brussels, um, we're definitely the poor relation, and nobody really, really, really wants to talk about us. I think you've really clearly laid out the quite uh, unique position that British citizens in Europe are in. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one thing I forgot to say, but I think it's important is that, you know, we're in a context of Brexit as a taking back control. But what we found is, uh, certainly on the family reunification point, is that the UK government has negotiated to in the withdrawal agreement to keep and maintain the rights of EU citizens living in the UK on family reunification, but they've actually reduced the rights for their own citizens. And they have an opportunity to let us at least keep our rights, but they haven't, they've taken us, taken it away. So it, it's a really bizarre situation to be in. What comes across really loud and clear in all of this is that although Britain has left the European Union, For British citizens who live in the EU, there are still so many issues outstanding and you're still fighting and you're still advocating. And I think that's a really clear message um, that needs to be heard uh, and that needs to be repeated ad infinitum, as you have been doing for the last four years. Before we go, I just wanted to um, ask if you had a myth that you'd like to bust about British citizens who live abroad. Yeah, I'd I'd have to go back to my roots and the start of this conversation and say that it's not only, you know, wealthy, well-off, well-connected, middle-class Brits who've been able to exercise free movement rights. It drives me mad when people say that. You know, I come from this working-class background. My mum left school at the age of 14. She came from a mining family. Her dad had a stroke. She had to leave school the next day, get a job. My dad left school at 15, came from a single-parent family growing up in the 30s also had to go and get a job. So I don't come from a silver spoon background at all. Um, but I'm I'm the perfect marriage of the EU and the UK working as they should do, because I had a brilliant, you know, solid, rock solid state comprehensive education in the 70s and the 80s, followed by a good red brick university education. And then on top of that, I, I had these EU rights and I put them together. And I've created a life, I've created a family, I've created a career that I absolutely love. And 
the system works exactly as it should do, you know, re respecting British competence in education, but, you know, giving me free, mo free movement rights and citizenship rights. And I've enjoyed amazing social and economic mobility and so many other rights because the system worked as it should have done. And it didn't matter what my background was and it didn't matter what my accent was, accent was or is. And it didn't matter that, you know, by the end of the month, we could barely, you know, make ends meet, although we tended to in the end. Like you say, I've, there are so many Brits from a similar background. You know, we came over, we did, you know, we did the Afidas AMPET and we came over to Germany or, or France and got jobs in the 80s and 90s and we've made it work. And I just feel really sorry that my 20-year-old niece in Bradford won't have these options. But at the same time, to end on a positive note, her 23-year-old sister was offered a job in Berlin last May and took it and handed in her undergraduate thesis and then four hours later she was on a plane from Manchester to Berlin and you know she's there and she's established and she's working and she loves it and we've got her in under the wire and I'm really really glad that we managed to do that. Thank you Mary very much Fiona that's a fantastic place to end a story of how Europe facilitated social mobility um, I think is a really important one that we remember um, as we go into whatever <laughs> everything holds for us next. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome and good luck. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast with me, Dr. Mikola Benson. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by searching for Brexit Brits Abroad on iTunes and Libsyn. And to join in the conversation, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at BrexPatsEU, and you can visit our Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. To find out more about the project, visit our brand new website, that's BrexitBritsAbroad.org. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode. <laughs>